Let's pray before we get started. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it's true. I thank you that there is not a part of your word that is false or leads us astray. But, Father, your word is true, and it's living, it's breathing, it's active, it's sharp. It, God, it, it convicts us, but also presents us with your grace and with your truth. It draws us closer to you, and we're so thankful for your word. Would you make it come alive even more today? In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone said, amen. I forgot, we're taking communion at the end of church day. If you do not have one of these, can you please raise your hand, and an usher will bring you some communion elements. Uh, It'll be at the very end, so don't worry, you've got time. Just keep your hand up. We've got people walking around right now. They're going to pass it out. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3. We firmly believe that God wants to bring spiritual renewal to the Columbia Basin. That's why we're here. That's why we exist we, we exist to see dry places saturated with the presence of God. And, and we're talking about our geographic location, the Columbia Basin, Ephratus, Soap Lake, Moses Lake. We want to see these places saturated with God's presence. But more specifically, we want to see dry hearts saturated with the presence of God. And to saturate, the word saturate is a loaded word. It, it, it means to hold as much water as can be absorbed. And this is God's desire for all people when it comes to the Holy Spirit. He wants people to absorb the most that they can of his spirit, that, their, that his presence would reside inside of his people. He not only saved you to free you from hell, but he saved you to a purpose. And he saved you so that he could fill you with his presence. He could fill you with his spirit to accomplish a mission, a purpose that he has for you. This is God's desire for all people when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Not only does he want us to put our trust in him, he wants to fill us to overflowing and for us, for our spiritual roots to grow in the experience of his love. And in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul writes this. He says, I pray that from his glorious, everybody needs to catch this word, unlimited Excuse me, Ephesians 3, verse 16 through 19. It should be on the screen. I've got this slide. There it is. There it is. Reading from the New Living Translation. I pray that from his glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Man, we could stop there. He has unlimited resources, church. Unlimited resources. How many of you are... In a bind, or it, you, you need help. We, we live with this concept of a tiny God. We put God in a box. He has unlimited resources, church. Verse 17, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Get this. Your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ. How many of you have grown up in church before and people, I, this, 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 I grew up in church and people would tell me all the time, Jesus loves you, Jesus loves you. But it wasn't until I had an experience with his love that I fully knew how much he loved me. I can hear that all day long, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves me, but, but he wants you to experience his love. He wants you to have an an encounter with his love. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully. Then he says this. Then you will be made 
complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. All the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Paul prayed that the people in Ephesus would be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. His prayer was that they would be saturated, that they would have all the experience. They would, be, they, they would have so much of God's presence. They would experience so much of his love that they couldn't absorb any more to hold as much of the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that could be absorbed. So how do we become saturated in the presence of, in the presence of God? How do our hearts become saturated? Well, when you're filled with God's presence or his Spirit, your life will produce what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. You begin to produce the fruit of the Spirit, according to Galatians 5.22. And the fruit of the Spirit is the result of being rooted in good soil. Paul mentions in Ephesians 3, he, he wants our roots to grow down deep in God's love. And when your roots are firmly planted and are growing in God's love, then you experience the fruit of the Spirit. It results in bearing fruit. And in the cycle of fruit-bearing plants, fruit comes at the very end of the process, doesn't it? on farmers, people who, who have gardens in their backyard, you know this. It comes at the very end of the process. First, a seed is planted in the ground. And when it receives enough water, that seed breaks open and, and, and begins developing a root system. And eventually a shoot will break above the soil and into the air and sunlight. And both the plant and its root system continue to grow until the plant is mature enough to bear fruit fruitfulness in your life comes through a similar process. Luke 8, 11, Jesus compares the word of God to a seed that is planted in our hearts, in soil. God plants the seed of his word inside of you, and he waters it with his Holy Spirit, bringing it to life. Thanks, Dad. That's my dad, my mom and dad right here in the front, for those of you who don't know. It's not intimidating to have your parents right in the front row while you preach. It waters it with the Holy Spirit, bringing it to life. He begins to give you insight in who he created you to be in him and what he's calling you to do with him. He stirs up that desire in you to have lasting impact in the world. And then he starts to build a root system for that seed in your heart, your internal world. See, he, he, he plants the seed of God's word in your heart. His Holy Spirit waters it. And as, as you begin to get close to him and, and read his word and spend time in his presence, that root continues to grow in his love and become more and more mature until eventually you begin to bear fruit. John 15, verses 5, 8, and 16. I kind of skip around in this chapter. But Jesus talks about the importance of abiding in him, the importance of remaining in him. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, you will bear much, what? Fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. Who are his disciples? The ones who are producing fruit. We skip over this in the church. Oftentimes we put faith and works at odds with each other. No, 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 you're not saved by your works. You're not saved by your fruit. You're not, you're not saved by what you produce. You are saved by God's grace alone. And while that is true, there is a tension that we hold in faith that when we are saved, our life naturally produces fruit. I've been reading a book called uh, Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and, and the, the author makes an argument 
that we've been thinking of the word faith all wrong, that we should actually think of the word faith uh, and translate it more towards the term allegiance. You are saved through allegiance alone. Faith is not just a mental shift where you acknowledge mentally that Christ died for you and therefore I have salvation, therefore I'm going to heaven. No, faith is allegiance to God. It's not only putting your trust in him mentally, spiritually, positioning your life, but it's also saying, I have allegiance to God, therefore I'm going to do the things that that kingdom says it's trying to accomplish. I'm going to partner with that kingdom in such a way that my life is going to now shift and I'm going to start doing things in my life so that I can see the fulfillment of God's kingdom on earth. My allegiance is to Jesus. My allegiance is to heaven. I have placed my allegiance in Jesus. And he says, when you produce much fruit, you are my disciples. And this brings glory to my father. And then he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And then he says, fruit that will last. He wants what we produce to have an eternal impact, to last for generations. I know lots of people who accept Jesus in their life, but they do not finish well. Their fruit does not last. They wander away. They, 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 start, they, they start not holding the Bible as truth, and they start listening to the voices of the world around them, and their fruit does not last. Jesus says, if you remain in me, if you abide in me, if your roots go down deep into my Father's love, then you will have fruit that lasts. How many of you want fruit that lasts to your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren, that you have an eternal impact, that even when you get to heaven, the angels and Jesus are saying, wow, you, you, you bore fruit that lasted. It's lasting even now. That's what we all want. Banny Liebscher is the director of Jesus Culture, the pastor's Jesus Culture Church in Sacramento. He wrote a book called Rooted. It's a great book. I highly recommend you pick it up. But he says this. He says, if you are a follower of Jesus, then your calling and destiny are to be fruitful. Fruit is not a bunch of spiritual or religious activities like going to church, reading your Bible, keeping the Ten Commandments, or even preaching the gospel. Fruit means that when people taste your life, you taste like Jesus. For you to bear abundant, enduring fruit, God needs to make you bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. You have to let him build your root system in secret before he leads you into making a visible impact in the world. In order for us to bear fruit that lasts, we have to become bigger on the inside than we are on the outside. Many of us want the opportunity to stand on the platform, to stand in the arena with Goliath. We want the opportunity, just give me the giant, God. I'm ready. I'm ready to take on the, I'm ready to take on the giant. I'm ready for people to watch and see how you've prepared me for this moment. But what God is saying, no, no, no. First, I want you to take care of the lion and the bear when nobody is watching. When you are alone in the field and nobody else is around, you have to have victory over the private battles before you have victory in the public arena. And that is what God is preparing his church for. 
for us to have victory in the private areas of our life. When the doors are closed, when nobody is watching, we have victory over those lions and the bears. And then when we're standing in the arena with Goliath, we can say, God has given me the lion and the bear. I've seen him do it in my private life, and he's going to do it now. And we have faith in the public place. But he has to make you bigger on the inside. Your root system has to grow down deep. There is a calling on the life of every follower of Jesus that first has to be supported by years of root development. We want the quick and easy answers, don't we? God, give me faith. Give me, give me dreams and visions, God. And we're hoping that the next day we, we wake up with just greater faith. And we don't realize that those things are muscles that need to be worked out. Those are things that we develop in the secret place. Those are roots that continue to grow. And at Desert Church, our passion is to see people rooted in three different soils. And I believe these three different soils are biblical. We see them throughout characters in, in the Bible. But the three soils that I pray every person in our church is rooted in are these three things. Number one. I pray that every person in our church is rooted in intimacy with God. That they have a secret life with God. They have a private life with God when nobody is watching. The second thing is this, that our, everybody in our church would be rooted in community with the church. Community inside the church with people of faith, with, pe- with your brothers and sisters, with the family that God has placed you in. My prayer is that everybody would be rooted in community in the church. This is something that our culture has decided we don't need anymore. Why, you know, and the p- pandemic showed us this. Is that once people couldn't meet together, some people decided, well, I don't need the church. I don't need to be around fellow believers for me to have a relationship with God. I can stay home. I can work on this myself. And we live in this silo of spiritual growth, this silo of discipleship. I'm going to do it on my own. I don't need accountability. I don't need instruction. I don't need encouragement. I'm just going to do it on my own. That doesn't work. Let me tell you now, that does not work because relationship is one of the reasons we were created. That God was in relationship that we could see this, relate, this trinity relationship in the heavens before the earth was even created. There was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were in a relationship before time began. And then he created man, and he told the man, it's not good for you to be alone, Adam. I'm going to send you a helper suitable for you. We were created for relationship. The third, the third soil that we're supposed to be rooted in is this. It is service to the world. We discover our purpose. We experience purpose when we serve the world. And each one of us not only should be rooted in intimacy with God and in community with the church, but we should also be very rooted in sacrificial service to the world, just like Jesus was. We see this in the life of David. David was a man after God's heart. And he was rooted in these three soils. He was rooted in intimacy with God. Even when he was a young shepherd in the field, when nobody was watching, he developed roots in intimacy with God. He developed roots in community. He found 400 mighty men when he was hiding in caves, and those were his guys. That was his posse. He did everything with those guys. He found community when he was hiding. He was also rooted 
in service to a king who was trying to kill him. That he was anointed to be king of Israel when he was 14 years old. And he didn't actually take the throne until he was 30-something. He waited for years. Maybe he was 16. He waited, I think he waited 14 years to become king. But all that time, he served Saul with sacrificial humility, with love. And he gave his life to service to Saul. He was rooted in these three things. Jesus was rooted in these three soils, church. He went away to be with the Father. Very often he would withdraw and he would, he would go away by himself and he would pray away from the crowds and he was rooted in intimacy with his Father. He was also surrounding himself with people that he invested into, that he discipled to lead the church. He surrounded himself with the people that were going to take on the church after he went to heaven. And he modeled perfectly for us what sacrificial service to the world looks like. Those three things again, intimacy with God. We must first become deeply rooted in intimacy with our creator and father. John 15, Jesus invites his followers to abide, remain in him at all times. He wants us to be close to him. He gave us his Holy Spirit so that he could commune with us. Community in the church. Followers of Jesus are part of a greater story. They belong to a greater story. They belong to a bigger community. And every member of the church has unique gifts that they've been equipped with in order to build up the body of Christ. Did you know that Jesus, one of his last prayers before he went to the cross, it's seen in John chapter 17, that his followers, he prayed, he could have prayed for anything. He could have prayed for courage. He could have prayed for faith. He could have prayed for, God, give, give the church supernatural wisdom. Give them authority. You know what he prayed for and and one of his last prayers before going to the cross, John 17, he prayed that his church would be united. He prayed that the people, his people who follow him, would be one with each other as he is one with his father. He prayed for unity, that they would be together, united. Doing things together was always Jesus' idea for the church. And the last thing, service to the world. Our mandate is to share the love of Jesus with the whole world. And our purpose in life is deeply connected to the mission of God. And believers must be rooted in service to the world if the church is going to have lasting impact. Those are the three soils that I pray every member of our church is rooted in. And in the book of Acts, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. This is the gold standard for church discipleship right here. The book of Acts gives us a picture of what the early church looked like and the fruit that is produced when people are rooted in these three soils. When people are rooted in these soils, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Are you ready? Acts chapter 2, verse 42. It says this. All the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to sharing in meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer And a deep sense of awe came over them all. And the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders. All the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper and shared their meals with great joy and generosity. 
all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day, the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. Doesn't this passage sound pretty utopic? Pretty perfect, doesn't it? What about this passage stands out to you? What are some things that you hear as, we, as you read this? What, what words or what phrases, what things stand out to you, church? You can speak up. They shared their money. What? They met together. What else? They loved each other. Yeah. They were added every day. They were added every day. The Lord added to their number every day. They worshiped together. Yes. They witnessed signs and wonders daily. Everyone sold what they had to meet the needs of everyone in the church. They were full of joy and generosity, and each day people were being saved. It's unfortunate that for many American Christians, this passage reads like a fairy tale. Does it read like a fairy tale? Does, 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 do you read this and you go, wow, I, I don't, our, our church doesn't look like that. I don't know of a church that looks like that. We read this and we wonder, is that really possible to get back there again? Can we do it? With a lot, Dad says, with a lot of persecution, probably. Every church has a different recipe for making disciples and fulfilling the Great Commission. You know, we, every church, we've, we've all been given the same call to go and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, and surely I will be with you to the end of the age. That is the assignment. Every church has the same assignment. But every church has a different recipe of making disciples. I'm getting that. Every church has a different emphasis. That's why when you go to one church, they really emphasize their worship. And you go to another church, they really emphasize their, their, their healing ministries or their deliverance ministries or, or, or celebrate recovery. Or, or you go to another church and they, they, they heavily emphasize this liturgical uh, uh, service or, or reading of the word verse by verse. Every church has a different recipe for making disciples. But I believe that when we read the book of Acts, we see the best recipe. There is a best way. Every church has a different flavor, and, and, and God has called every church to, to, to walk out, to do the things that he's asking them to do. But if we're not careful... It's easy for the church to put programs in place that make it feel like we're actively engaging in the things that we read in Acts. So, for instance, uh, we, we see teaching, we see prayer, we see fellowship, we see taking care of the poor, we see signs and wonders. And if we're not careful, the church begins to put programs in place that make it feel like you know, we're going to small group, we're doing our devotional guides, we're, we're going to prayer nights, we're doing community outreach events, and those are all great things. But what makes those things even greater is when they are done with the proper attitudes. When they are done with the proper attitudes, with the right heart, that's what makes those things even greater. And so we could go through this, this, this chapter in Acts and look at all the things that they were doing, prayer, and we're going to get to those um, we are going to relaunch. Uh, how many of you remember the, our, our Rooted experience that we did a couple years ago? It's a 10-week experience. Of, it's a process of discipleship, and it's a, 
It's a way to connect with some of the rhythms that we see in the book of Acts. And, and we're going to do that again come January and, and talk about and really emphasize those things that we see. But today, I want to emphasize the attitudes that we see in Acts. What were the hearts of the believers like? Where were their hearts positioned? And how did they go about doing things like prayer, doing things like taking care of the poor, doing things like worship? How did they go about doing those? What were the attitudes that they had in those things? And so the first one I want to talk about is this. The first church in Acts 2, they had devotion. We see right there in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to these things. They had devotion. And the word devotion means to be constant, to give unrelenting care to something, to persevere and not to faint, to be ready and wait on constantly. The first church devoted themselves to spiritual rhythms like soaking in the word of God through the apostles' teachings because they didn't have the New Testament at the time. Gathering together with fellow believers, communion, prayer, worship, serving the community, they devoted themselves to these things. And what does devotion to these things look like? If you're anything like me, you probably read this and you think, man, I can hardly pray for five minutes. When I read the Bible, I can only read a a chapter a day and then I get confused. What does being devoted to these things look like? Well, let me share with you a story of devotion, and this might be more of a story for guys or those who like to golf, Uh, but here's an illustration. There was a man whose father taught him how to golf at an early age. He had an old set of clubs, and as he grew older, he rarely went golfing, but one day his friend invited him to golf at a really nice course. You see where I'm going with this, guys? This is, who likes to golf in this room? Okay, you're with me. One day, his friend invited him to golf at a really nice course, and his friend paid for everything, and he was a great golfer. And the two laughed together in the golf cart as they played. They stopped for a meal after nine holes, and even though the man didn't get a great score, he had an amazing experience. Those who like to golf are saying, yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. Those who don't like to golf are saying, that sounds like hell. But let's just assume that this is a great experience for you, okay? And when this man, he got back home, all he could think about was how much fun he had and how he enjoyed spending quality time with his friends. So from that day on, he spent hours at the driving range practicing his golf swing. He sold a bunch of stuff so he could purchase newer golf clubs. He stayed up late into the night watching YouTube videos called How to Stop Slicing Your Drives. And he wanted more of his friends to get into golf, so he offered to pay for his friends' rounds. He joyfully paid for their lunches, their golf club rental. He even gave them gift cards to Golf Galaxy so they could get new clubs. He was in love with the experience he had with his great golfing friend, and he wanted to replicate that experience with others. I don't know, I don't know this for a fact, but I think Jesus would be a great golfer. He has invited you into a wonderful experience with him, and he's paid for everything. And imagine if we became as devoted to spending time with Jesus. We stay up late thinking about our next experience, our next encounter in the presence of God. We get rid of things that we don't need in order to clear out distractions and streamline the important things in life. We spend time in our prayer closets in order to sharpen our abilities 
There are people who are devoted to their crafts, devoted to their sports, devoted to things in life. And we are asked to be devoted to fellowship, devoted to prayer, devoted to the teaching of God's word, to show devotion to these things. And unfortunately, many of the rhythms that we're supposed to be devoted to have become luxuries in the American church. Prayer can become something that we practice only in moments of need instead of daily communion with our Father. The Word of God can become a bunch of motivational tweets on an already large pile of quotes, something that we can post to Facebook with a shiny sunset behind it. Fellowship with others in church has already become for many a difficult and unnecessary element in our spiritual lives. Relationship is hard, especially when we're all so different and all in different seasons of life. And relationship is hard. When somebody says something to you, the, the first, our gut reaction is, I'm just not coming back. I'm going to find another church. I'm going to be part of a different community. I don't want to go through this. Relationship is hard. But the Bible asks us to be devoted to these things. The Greek word for fellowship in verse 42 is the Greek word koinonia. And it refers to community, but it also refers to association and participation. This means that God's intent for people was to get redeemed into a family. A family that is united in their doctrine and united in love and commitment to one another. And it also means that when you become a part of this fellowship, you automatically have a responsibility or participation. You are not, there's nobody that sits on the bench in the church. Everybody participates. Everybody gets in the game. You're called to contribute to the growth and the betterment of the church through prayer, through service, through sacrificial generosity. They were devoted in all that they did. It was one of the attitudes of the first church, this idea of devotion. Not half-heartedness, not, oh, I'm going to give it a try, but they were devoted. The second attitude that we see is one of awe. Awe. The Greek word for awe is the word phobos. That's where we get the word phobia. This word literally means fear or dread or terror. In some translations, if you're reading from a different translation, your Bible says, and fear came over every soul. The meaning of this is clear. It's that people became very careful of the way that they conducted themselves. Hidden sins declined as people grew aware that God was watching everything that they did. And there was a widespread consciousness in that city being in God's presence. That doubt was at an all-time low. It was at a low level. Not only does today's church need more devotion, but we need more fear of God. We need, to, we need more fear of God. The awareness that God is watching everything that we do behind closed doors. There was a sense of devotion, but there was a sense of fear came over every soul. God is here. He is moving. He's got a plan and a purpose that's bigger than me. He's going to, I'm going to have to get out of the way if I'm not on board. And there was this sense that if I'm not on God's team, then I'm working against him. And I don't want to do that. I want to be on God's team. Fear came over every soul. They all lived with this attitude of awe as they saw the apostles perform 
miraculous signs and wonders. There were the power gifts present. The Spirit of God was healing, was delivering, and people were aware that God was in the room, that he was in this place. The third attitude is this. It's one of joy. Sarah said this last week, happiness is circumstantial. It comes and goes depending on external factors, but joy is a supernatural gift of God that comes through the Holy Spirit and the knowledge that we have something to rejoice about. Our sins are forgiven, and we have an internal inheritance with Jesus. And for some reason, Luke, who is the author of the book of Acts, when he writes the word joy in this, in this verse, he doesn't use the common word for joy, which is, I believe it's chara. He uses a Greek word that's only used five times in the New Testament. And I'm going to butcher this, agiliasis. And it means extreme joy or exaltation. And this word is often associated with the image of the oil of gladness being poured over somebody. And it's mentioned both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. You're going to know this verse, Psalm 23, verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. And the idea is this oil that's being poured, this oil of joy, oil of gladness being poured over the church in Acts 2. In Hebrews 1.9, it says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has set you above your companions, and he's talking about Jesus, by anointing you with the oil of joy. This picture of oil being poured over the church, this oil of gladness. Well, the image is that of oil. And so what does oil do? What did oil do? What, was, what made oil so significant in the first century, in the first church? Well, there's a few reasons. Number one, oil was used to anoint and to qualify people to an office. Kings were anointed with oil by God's prophets when they were selected to be king. A prophet would come and they would anoint their head with oil. They would pour oil over their head. As a symbol, a sign, they have been anointed and qualified into an office. The Lord has selected you. He has appointed you. He's positioned you. He's prepared you. You are here because God has placed you here. That was one of the uses for oil. The, another use for oil was it was used to heal diseases. James five fourteen says, Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, was it the oil that did the healing? No, it's the prayer of faith. It's God's, it's God's power that did the healing. But, but oil in the first century was used to, to mend a lot of diseases and, and wounds. They would pour oil on, on people. And it was, it was used to heal. Oil was also used to soften skin and leather. And it strengthened the leather. The leather would become brittle and hard. And when you would soften it with oil, it would become strong once again. It's a softener. It softens things. And the last thing is oil was a beautifier. It was used after people bathed themselves. They put oil on their faces, and it was used as a perfume. It smelled good. So what's the picture here? Is that when God pours out the oil of gladness on his church, it's attractive and beautiful to others. It smells wonderful. They see people, they see, they see God's people full of joy, and they, it's attractive. It's a beautifier, and they go, wow, that joy 
is something that I don't have. It smells so wonderful. There's something about the oil of gladness that is different from everything else I've experienced. It's also this idea of, of, of God uh, anointing and of, of him uh, qualifying and selecting his church with joy, saying, like, look, you, I have, I have selected you for this season. I have saved you. I've brought you into this family, and you are qualified. You are ready. I have positioned you in this moment. How many of you also heard the term that laughter is medicine? Joy is this healing agent and heals our souls. It heals our spirits. That we have joy not just when we're feeling happy, but we have joy at all times, even through distress. When a loved one dies, when that person knows Jesus, we have joy even despite the, the sorrow. Yes, they're gone. They've, they're with Jesus, but, but we can rejoice because we're going to see them again. It's this healing thing. Oil is also used to soften. Joy has a way of of softening our hearts and of strengthening us. And so the image is that God has poured out this oil of gladness, this joy on his church that's given that, that gives us this this attitude of joy and so we do everything with joy. We worship together with joy. We give to others with joy. We we eat together with joy. We serve our community with joy. We do everything with joy. The fourth attitude that we're going to look at is generosity. And sometimes people get uncomfortable when the pastor begins talking about generosity. One criticism of the church today is that, no, I'm not going to church. They're only after your money. I'm not going to church. That, that's all they talk about is money, money, money. And I also know lots of people who refuse to tithe. They'd be going to church for all, they refuse to tithe, and their excuse is, you, you aren't just generous with your money, but you can tithe with other things as well. And while that is true, very true, you can't escape the financial generosity that is seen throughout the first church. They sold everything they had, and they gave the money to the apostles to, the, to distribute to the poor. You can't escape it. The church was financially generous. They were sacrificially generous. Whether you like it or not, you can't escape the fact that generosity is a foundational aspect of following Jesus. It's a foundational aspect of a believer, that believers have to be generous. We have to live with our hands open, not with our hands closed, and this is mine, you can't have it. But Jesus modeled for us what it looks like to say, no, I'm going to live with my hands open so I can bless other people. If I have my hands closed, I can't bless other people. But if I open up my hands and I trust God with all that I have, including my money, I can bless those around me. And when God sees you do that, that's why the Bible says he blesses back tenfold. It's not a prosperity gospel. It's not a name it and claim it gospel. It is the Bible that says that when you live with open hands, when you live with generous hearts, that God sees that you can be trusted in your generosity, you can be trusted with what he's given you so he gives you even more because he knows that when he gives you more, you're just going to bless more people. Did you know that Jesus himself talked about money more than he spoke about heaven and hell combined? If you read his teachings throughout the Gospels, he knew that our money has a tendency to attach to our hearts. And when we live generously and use what we have to be a blessing to others, God entrusts us with even more resources. God does not want generosity from you. He wants generosity for you. He does not need your money. God does not need your money. 
He has unlimited resources, like we talked about this morning. He has unlimited financial backing. He does not need your money, but he wants you to experience what it's like to partner with him and to bless other people. He wants generosity for you so you can experience what that life is like. And the last, at, the last attitude that we're going to talk about this morning is the attitude of thankfulness. It's gratitude. It says that they went about praising God all the time. They were thankful. They were thankful that God had redeemed them, placed them in this family, that, that he was their provider, that they uh, had everything in common with one another, that they sold their possessions and took care of one another. They were thankful. They did everything with thankful hearts. These are some attitudes that I believe the Lord wants to see once again in his church, that we do everything with devotion. We do everything fully invested, fully in, that we do everything with the fear of God in mind, that he's watching what we do, and so I'm going to live my life accountable to somebody, accountable to the fact that God is here, and he sees what I'm doing. We live our lives, we do everything with joy, that we have this oil of gladness that's been poured over us. We do everything with generosity, with our hands open, and we do everything with gratitude and thankfulness. And we're going to take communion at this time. I'm going to invite Mary to come up and play the keys while we do this. But I don't think there's any more appropriate way to say thank you and remind us of what Jesus has done for us than to do this right now. It's active communion. You can open up your packets. But before Jesus went to the cross, he was w- with his disciples in a room. And if you don't know the story... Jesus sat at a table with them, and it was a Passover meal. And the, 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 the Jewish people had been doing this Passover meal ever since they were delivered from Egypt. And Jesus gave new meaning to the Passover meal when he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, hey, guys, this bread that we're about to eat, this is my body that is about to be broken for you. The imagery is that Jesus was saying, my body is going to be broken so that your body can be whole. I'm going to take that on the cross. I want you to live with whole hearts, with whole bodies. I want you to be free from sickness. I want you to be free from emotional pain. Now, does it mean we'll never experience that stuff in life? Absolutely not. But Jesus, his desire for you is to be healed. Isaiah 53 says that he was crushed for our transgressions. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was scourged. His body was torn apart so that you and I could find healing and wholeness. And the next thing he did is he took the cup. And he said, this cup that we're about to drink from, you've been doing this for years, guys, but here's the new meaning. This wine that we're about to share, this is my blood that's going to be shed for your forgiveness of sins. And it's going to pay for everything. Past, present, and future. It's good enough. It's more than good enough. It's more than enough. It's going to pay for everything. And because of this sacrifice, because of what I'm about to do on the cross, 
you and I can have a better, we can, we can have a relationship. I'm going to send my Holy Spirit to fill you. And no longer is my presence going to reside in a temple, in a tabernacle, in a tent. It's going to live in you. You will be the house of God. This was the significance of what he did on the cross. And we, 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 we remember it with thankfulness, with gratitude in our hearts. So would you pray with me? Hold the bread. Father, we thank you for your body that was broken for us. Right now, if there's anybody in the room who needs healing, physical healing, would you just raise up your hand? Raise up your hand if if you need physical healing in this place. Everybody else, look around you. Look at those people with their hands raised. Just reach out to their shoulder. Touch them on the shoulder. And pray a prayer of faith over them right now. Jesus, we thank you that your word says that by your stripes we are healed. That you said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And I give it to you. Jesus, we claim that authority. We say thank you for the cross. Thank you for the blood. Thank you for that your body was broken. And we speak life over every body in this church. Every person in this church, Father, we pray that this sickness, we command this sickness to leave in Jesus' name. Every cancer, every, every deformity, every disease, every cell that doesn't belong, we command it to go in Jesus' name. We speak life in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for that authority. And we fully expect, Holy Spirit, that you are bigger than us. Lord, it's not, it's not by our power. We can't do this. It's by your power that you've given to us. And Father, we embrace that this morning. In Jesus' name. Let's all take the bread together. Take the cup. And Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was shed on the cross. Father, I thank you. Man, I've tried time and time again to just get better on my own. I'm going to go to church more. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to go to the small group. I'm just going to do everything I can to make myself feel clean and make myself feel whole. But all of it just falls short. It's not good enough. It leaves me needing more. Jesus, you said your blood was enough. It paid for past, present, and future. There isn't a sin in this room that is too powerful for your blood. And if, in, if you're in here thinking, man, Christ was, his sacrifice was good enough for that other person, just wasn't good enough for me. You don't know the things I've done, Pastor. Put that behind you this morning. That's a lie. Because the blood of Jesus was enough. It is enough. And he isn't waiting with a bat to punish you and put you down and remind you of your mistakes. His arms are open wide. He is a God of grace. He's a God of compassion. He's slow to anger and abounding in love. And if you need a fresh start today, if you need a clean slate, if you need to say, God, I don't know where I've been for the last years, for the last months, last weeks. I don't know where I've been, but I'm, I'm here now. And I'm coming back to you. If that's you, would you just raise your hand for me? Say, that that's me, Pastor. I, I feel like God's asking me to come back. 
been away. Praise God. Jesus, we thank you for your blood. And we receive it in faith, knowing that our sins are forgiven and we are thankful. Let's take this together. We love you, Lord. And we pray your blessing on the rest of this day. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. We love you, church. We're going to hang out. We're going to have some food. So stick around. God bless the food. Thank you, Jethro and Cheryl. and Everybody's been helping out with the food. You are amazing.